Hello everyone, this is Josiah from the future. Uh, real quick, just wanted to say I apologize uh, for how long this episode took to edit and get out. Um, I recorded, I think it was at the beginning of October, uh, I'll have to double check, but you know, it, it, it's been a minute. Um, there were some audio issues on this one that took me a little longer than usual to edit, and then um, full honesty, uh, complete honesty here, Victoria 3 uh, came out the paradox game and every time I started editing this I'd start thinking a lot about 19th century Europe and then it'd be like I kind of want to play Victoria 3 Any, anyway so I apologize for that um, but this is a wonderful episode with Chris Barker so um, enjoy and uh, listen to a bunch of history geeks talk about history it's uh, it's a fun time you're listening to fruitless podcast hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. This is episode 12, The Springtime of the Peoples, featuring Chris Barker, where we talk about the 1848 revolutions. I will I will formally say welcome everybody to another exciting episode of Fruitless. We are joined today by our first uh, returning guest to this show. Uh, that's right. It's Chris Barker. Uh, I, at this point, I would say the resident historian of Fruitless, I would say. You come on and you talk about history. That's what happens. I, I, you can't escape it. <laughs> History is always there. It's why it's why today happened. Yes. And so uh, let's see. We, we have a bunch of stuff we always talk about. We generally talk about Russian history. We've talked a lot about Irish history. But there is one nope. subject that both you and I are very always, always thinking about and have never had an excuse to talk about. And so we're going to do it today. And that is the revolutions of 1848. The sometimes successful and mostly failed revolutions of 1848. The, the, I would say, yeah, the failed revolutions who somehow pulled off their dreams 30 years later. Yeah. <laughs> Tec- technically got crushed, and yet somehow it all worked out in 30 years. <laughs> and, and, and also have cast a long like shadow over the rest of uh, Western European history in ways that most people just like, don't grapple with or think about. No, I... I think both you and I have this kind of thesis that 1848 is one of those events that is the key to understanding a lot of politics now. You know, this is like when modern European politics is born, which sure. eventually influences the rest of the world because of, you know, the colonial empires. Because of uh, Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> This happens everywhere. I mean, this is what, you know, 1848's wild. This is the time you, you got de Tocqueville writing at this time. You got Karl Marx writing at this time. This is this is the birth of politics of the modern age as we think of it. Yeah. So um, to kind of start us off here, why don't you give us a little bit of like a background and what the fuck was, was the 1848 revolutions? Uh, well, I mean, so like, you know, you can start with um, potentially like, uh, how far back do we want to go here? Um, I'm just like, because like, okay, the American Revolution, 
ends up kind of being the impetus for, in, in a lot of ways, ends up being kind of the impetus for the French Revolution. But then, mm-hmm. but then, like like the English Civil Wars in the early part of the 1700s, or wait, that's that's the 1700s, right? Not the 1600s. That's a, that's the 1600s. That's in the 1600s. I think where Parliament, you know, claws power back from the English Crown, kind of implicitly begins to set up what happens in the American Revolution, where they're just like, look, you can't just tell us what to do. Right, like we get some say in this sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So there, I mean, there's a ways that you can go back, but but basically, I think a like you know quick and dirty version of it is that um, there was this growing uh, understanding of national identity that was in very large part spurred by the French and the French Revolution, um, because as we were talking about before we came on. Uh, it was kind of a, a nifty little trick that the French did during the revolution to like, to, to just be like, Hey, like you're all just French now. Like those are the rules. You're not, <laughs> right, right. You're, you're not like from Provence. You're not from, you're not from Occitan. You're not from Burgundy. Brittany. You're not from Brittany. You're just, you're French now. Like that's just it. You're just a French person now, you mm-hmm. know, and there are still some notable, um, you know, holdouts even even today uh you know uh, the bosque people in in france still are kind of like eh, we should still kind of be our own country right like we're, we're basque we're not really french <laughs> but yeah. but it was like a nifty trick that the french pulled and they got like they they like began this like thing of like we're french and so then that helped kind of spur and I'm oversimplifying here a little bit, obviously, but that kind of helps spur the creation of national identities in the rest of the continent. Um, and, and there were other like political, uh, you know, factors that go into this, you know, Prussia wanting to, <clears throat> Prussia wanting to essentially unite all of the German speaking people into one Germany. That's like mostly because Prussia wanted to be in charge of like a lot more stuff and they just needed to eventually become Germany. And, you know, the unification of Italy is kind of the same sort of thing. And there's a, there's this growing like kind of recognition of, 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 of like subsuming regional differences under a broader national identity that sometimes Mm -hmm. is coming from, um, sometimes it's coming from above. It's like, it's like, you know, like I said, in like in Prussia, where they're like really trying to like cohesively pull this thing together. Sometimes it's coming from below, um, you know, grassroots movement. Sometimes those things are working in concert with one another. Um, but so that is like starting to like really form up, but you've also got the mm-hmm. remnants of these like, like absolutist rulers from, mm-hmm. you know, that are like leftovers from the from the 18th century and who are terrified of what happened in France during the revolution and are like not, they don't really want to hear from their subjects, right? There's like this growing no. idea that like people should be citizens of a country and, and then the rulers being like, no, you're a subject. And that, that starts yeah. to like really, they start to really butt heads, um, a certain point there. And then I'll just let you jump in. And- yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So I, I usually when when we talk about 1848, we talk about like the three questions, right? That I think is like helpful to talk about. You got the political question, the national question, and the social question. And so, you know, uh, and I mean, that's all crude in its own way and trying to simplify, you know, a whole continent's worth of political ideologies and histories. But you got you got this like, you know, the remnants of the absolutist monarchies. There's this question of, of constitutions. Um, you know, do we do we take on a constitution? If we have a constitution, are we going to reform the constitution? Are we going to get rid of the monarch and just have just a constitution and a republic? Yeah, that's like a political a, question. Like in America, or are we going to have? Uh, are we going to have something like the, the United Kingdom has? You know, the United Kingdom, for all of its uh, you know damnability, uh, is a remarkably uh, adaptable country you know where it can just be like it can just be like you know what uh even less power even less power to the monarch that's fine it's cool still still the king slash queen but like even less power it's fine whatever just like don't kill us yeah no yeah i mean if you're a liberal reformist i think 19th century britain is probably your uh your example of how that works i mean they they pulled it off pretty well all things considered oh for sure and like on that topic, okay, we got the economic question. Okay, well, Britain starts the fucking industrial revolution, which absolutely decimates mm-hmm. rural areas. Just absolutely decimates yeah. rural areas and like skilled artisans. And now people have to like move to the cities and work in these shitty factories and make no money and live in absolute mm-hmm. squalor. And they can't just like do their thing, hanging out at their house, turning out, you know, like 10 tables a year. They have to make. 10 mm-hmm. tables a day for less money than they got to make their 10 tables a year. Yeah, there was and then there was this rising group of of young radicals uh who were saying that maybe we should answer this question, the social question with a radical solution and maybe we should call ourselves socialists. <laughs> and there it is, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, there's just, there's so much foment, which I think is, is very, in a certain way, you know, we have kind of been in the midst of a, you know, a different kind of industrial revolution for most of our lives, right? It's, it's digital, you know, it's not like, yeah, information, yeah, information revolution, which has in a lot of ways really, really screwed up our society. Mm. Oh man, I, I don't. I don't want to spring too far forward here, but there is an interesting question and we could sit on it. Whether 2011 was the information ages, uh, 1848, because that's the Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street and the anti-austerity protests. Yeah, that's, yeah, um, potential. But, um, but then, you know, there's, there's all sorts of icky stuff we're dealing with now that the question is, are we, are we in the 1840s all over again? Right. So. Uh, what you know, what we were getting to right is we have the then the national question, which we already talked about. This question of do we have a national identity, and uh, if we do have a national identity, uh, should we unite as a nation state? Um, and if we do that, what do we do with the minorities? Which is that's the troubling yep. question that comes out and later we, on throughout the revolutions. Yeah, do, we, do we try to do we try to incorporate them into the national identity? Do we grant them special status? Do they get to like do their own thing and have their own country? Like, what do we do with this? And, you know, again, I, the United Kingdom for all of its various faults, which I think is actually kind of 
at this point on the on the verge of throwing itself apart because the <laughs> because the English can't be bothered to give a shit about their own national minorities, um, you know. Uh, but for a long time, like the United Kingdom did a pretty good job of a, a decent job of of integrating its national minorities in the same way that like the United States, with with the very obvious exceptions of anyone who is not white did a pretty good job of integrating mm-hmm. national minorities. Um, yes, you know. yes. It was a slow process, but yeah, the, the Irish and the Italians are white now. You know, like yeah. you don't... Poles are white and, you know, uh, yeah. Sp- like Spanish people, not Hispanic people, but Spanish people are white. You know, like we Portuguese mm-hmm. people are white. Like we like, we just subsume them within, you know, our own, you know, but... It, it, the, the limits of racism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you have that, that whole situation. And then the forties, as we were talking about off mic before then was the, the hungry forties. That's, you know, the Irish potato famine wasn't just in Ireland. It was all over Europe and well, people were hungry. People were pissed off. And that's a great way to get people, people uh, in the fight. streets and barricading shit. Yeah. 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 It's a great way to get people ready to fight. And, and the other thing to, to remember, too, is that um, famines are um, famines are man-made. Like, mm. Ireland remained a net exporter of food throughout the entire famine. It's just that Irish people weren't allowed to eat the food that they were making, right? And yeah. that is kind of broadly this... That, that basically broadly holds in a lot of Europe during the hungry forties. There was food to Mm -hmm. go around. It just wasn't given to the people who needed it. Um, And so, yeah. So poor people starved, which made them mad. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about the Irish example um, here specifically, I mean, a a great book on this is the graves are walking by uh, John Kelly. And he, he gets into the extent that the Protestant work ethic played into it because they did not feel it was justified to give the Irish food uh, for the sake of just giving them food. And so they set up these workhouses that people died yeah. in, <laughs> you know, um, because they had to earn their food. And so they had people building like roads to nowhere <laughs> in the snow to to earn their keep. So people are pissed off at this time. Like it's happening to a lesser extent in the continent, but it's, this shit's happening everywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, and famously de Tocqueville calls this the, that we're, we're standing on top of a volcano right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we, like, we live on a volcano and, and, you know, and Marx writes the communist manifesto, you know, there's a specter haunting yeah. Europe. You're goddamn right. There was yeah. and the specter was, <laughs> the specter was all you rich people keep, uh, all you rich people keep, stepping on the necks of the people who make your entire way of living possible. And at some point yeah. they're going to get sick of it. And they did get mm-hmm. sick of it eventually. The The unfortunate reality though, is that Marx is wrong to an extent with that opening line because it, because the specter of communism was haunting Europe, but it really wouldn't come out for a long, a lot longer. Um, yeah, the, spe- the specter that really was about to come out was nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. Then the specter of communism haunted Europe for another uh, the 70 years before it was finally like, boo, mm-hmm. you know, but the thing that actually, yeah. like you were saying, yeah. the thing that actually was, was the volcano that de Tocqueville was talking about 
was this sort of like like national identity, kind of a kind of a a perverse solidarity, right? It's not like a it's not like an international solidarity, like 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 you guys were talking about. I think yeah, that was that was that was last week on Mammonberg. Keanu was talking about the limits of international solidarity mm. and stuff, right? And like we didn't have like full international solidarity, full like all, but what you, but, but peop, what people could imagine in the forties was solidarity with people who talked like them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you share a language with yep. me, we share broad customs, we can have solidarity against these assholes who are making our lives miserable. And those jerks over here that we can't really talk to that well, well, fuck them, right? So it's like a, mm-hmm. it's, a it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a twisted solidarity. It's, it's very limited. Yeah. Well, and, and I think 1848, like nationalism is an interesting question that I don't think people grapple with quite enough um, because it's, it's, it is a force that goes both directions. So in the case of uh, Germany and Italy specifically, right um, during 1848, that was a question of States divided up into all these obnoxious provinces, you know, all these little States. And there was a sense of nationalism was going, Hey, we're the same. We all speak the same. We should be under the same flag. And it was a, it was a mostly positive thing in mm-hmm. 1848. Um, especially because the question of minorities wasn't coming up yet. Well, in in those regions, particularly when you remember that, like, Italy and Germany were intentionally divided by, essentially, the Habsburgs Mm -hmm. and the French. Like, the Habsburgs and the French had intentionally kept those two, like, areas fragmented because the French didn't want to deal with a strong Germany and a strong Italy, and the Habsburgs didn't want to deal with a strong Germany and a strong Italy. The national question within, like, the Habsburg Empire is an entirely different thing. Right. Like like mm-hmm. the Hungarians wanting independence or Serbs. Right. Which famously nothing bad comes out of uh, a Serb desire for independence. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nothing as bad has happened with Serbia. Let me tell you. No, no, nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing bad has ever happened because Serbs wanted to run their own shit. Uh, but like like those kind of questions within within the Habsburg monarchy. Like and, and that empire, that's like a different than that's that's like a that's a trying to get away from an overweening monarch. Whereas, like mm-hmm. like you were saying, Germany and Italy are about coalescing people who, broadly speaking, are culturally similar and are like, hey, there's absolutely no reason right. we should be a bunch of different countries. Like we're all basically the same. Like yeah, those people down in Bavaria are right. kind of weird, but like they're basically Germans. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, even when it was breaking away, um, you know, nationalism was not, you know, in the 19th century was on the side of liberalism and even socialism at times because, you know, you all want to dissolve the empire. You know, it it can be, you know, think of and and you could think of in a decolonial context, you know, it's nationalists who fight on behalf of Algeria against the French or Vietnam against the Americans and the French. And it's a it's a rather positive ordeal. Like I, I, I could comfortably say that. Yeah. You know, if, if we're, if we're talking yeah. about like a, you know, like a, uh, like a pseudo Gramscian sense, like if it's, if it's, if it's a reaction against the hegemon, it's not necessarily, well, it doesn't have to be bad, but it can very quickly curdle into mm. something bad. 
Exactly. And 1848 is a great example of that because, um, you know, famously, I mean, we say 1848 for a reason. It was a one-year ordeal, really. And that is it. It was a springtime of the peoples, literally in the spring, you know, and it was an autumn, (laughs) autumn time for the peoples, very much by autumn, you know. Yeah. And then (laughs) and then desolate, desolate central European winter, just snow everywhere and crushed hopes and an almost depopulated county in Iowa named after one of those guys. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, yeah yep well and we have uh we have a town in iowa called schleswig uh which was an incredibly a huge flashpoint yes yes and in part because of the national question because it was like a a a city that was basically 50 percent danish 50 percent german yeah and and so like the whole national question just did not work in this city (laughs) (laughs) yeah the germans were like this is ours and the, the danes were like no it's not in fact, we have a we have a whole we have a we have a whole treaty that says it's not that you can't have this, and the Germans are like, well, don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, this and and uh, you know, at least like Mike Duncan, right? I went back and listened to a couple of the episodes from his 1848 season. He really points to um, the the darker sides of nationalism being a big part of how Hungary's revolution failed, because mm-hmm. they took on the role of of magyarization. So they were yep. trying to force the uh, Hungarian language on everybody. They were trying to do the, the the thing the French did, right? You're you're French now. They're like you're Hungarian now, and there were a lot of people that weren't a fan of that. And so the thing just started to rip apart. Yeah, it, it, it had internal contradictions. I guess you know the French maybe had the potentially the the benefit of like going first, and so so, <laughs> yeah. so nobody else. Like there, there just wasn't like there, there wasn't like the sort of like by going first and being like, well, this is a nation now. We are French. This is France. Whatever. Um, they like were able to like bulldoze over and paper over some of the contradictions of of you know imposing a national identity on distinct regions. Because if you think about it, like look, Normandy versus the south of France versus like Provence. Is, like that's completely different. One side is on the English Channel and it sucks and it rains all the fucking time and it's terrible <laughs> and it's wet and cold and gross. And the other side is on the fucking Mediterranean and it's amazing. And what like those people don't have anything to do with each other and they didn't even barely speak the same language. They were almost barely intelligible mm-hmm. north to south in France. But the French Revolution was able to just paper over those cracks and be like, you're French now. But then that also gave the like framework for setting up an, like a national identity that everyone else kind of went and ran with. And like you were saying, by the time the Hungarian nationalists tried to do majorization, uh, well, all of the other national minorities in Hungary were like, no, but like, but we're not Hungarian. Like we're Serbs. Mm-hmm. Or or we're Bosnian yeah. or we're Croats or we're this that and the other thing, and so mm-hmm. like I don't want to learn your language. I like my language. Like I don't want to be forced to learn it. I'll talk to you. I'll learn your language so I can talk to you. But you also need to kind of learn my language too. Like it'd be nice, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, also reminds yeah. me of just the ways that like the English. I always bring this back to the English because I hate them. 
Uh, but th- the way that, like, they, <laughs> the way that they just completely, like, tried to extirpate the Irish, you know, and, like, not let people mm-hmm. speak Irish and, and try to, you know, convert the island and dispossess everybody. And, and the Irish people were just like, no, we're not having that. Like, I don't want to speak your language. I want to speak Irish. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, well, and I mean, you want to talk about this? I mean, this is this this question has never gone away. This is exactly mm-hmm. what we are literally watching a war, uh, you know, over to some extent or another in Ukraine right now. You know, this is because well, because Russians will try to say that Ukrainian is just a dialect of Russian, which it's not. It's it's a different language. They're very mm-hmm. similar languages, but like it's not Vladimir Zelensky. It's Volodymyr Zelensky. Because he's Ukrainian, mm-hmm. and they don't say Vladimir. Like they, they it's a different word. Mm-hmm. It's a different word. Yeah, right, uh, right. You know, and and that's that's uh, you know these same national questions are you know coming into play when you get to the border regions, especially of national <laughs> locations. You know, like we okay. mentioned, Schleswig being a, mm-hmm. a real issue for German nationalism. You know, Donetsk and Luhansk have been a big question for right on that edge between Ukrainian and Russian. And, you know, there are Russian speaking minorities there and that's, you know, that's, you know, everyone's like, well, uh, you know, you, uh, Crimea had been part of Russia since the 1700s. And then, uh, Elon Musk famously was talking about this horseshit, uh, over the weekend. I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I still cannot escape that asshole. And he was like, Oh, just give, uh, (laughs) give, Give uh, give Crimea back to Russia. It was it had been part of Russia since the 1700s until Khrushchev's mistake. And it's like the 1700s is not that long ago. Like it, like yeah. 1780 something was when Russia took over Crimea. The United States is older than Russia's like possession of Crimea. So, what real like yeah. what real claim do you have here? The United States is a very young country. Yeah, you know, and yeah, and speaking of border mm-hmm. regions, you know. Uh, a place that famously never had anything uh, weird happen, Alsace-Lorraine, you know? Like, that is mm-hmm. a, like, yeah. right on the border of France and Germany, and that, that's basically the whole point of World War II, kind of. Yeah. Like, France was like, yeah, no, hey, we're taking example. that back after World War One," and the Germans were pissed about it. I mean, not mm-hmm. just not just losing Alsace-Lorraine, but, like, you know, it's like... It, it was, was like, it was a big part of it. It was a big part of it. They like they lost part of their territory and they were mad about it. And the people mm-hmm. who live there speak a very distinct dialect of French, and most of them also speak German, because they're just there's Germans right there. Like they're just right mm-hmm. over there. So everyone speaks German and everyone over yeah. there speaks French. And it's like who's to say who is who? Like maybe you're just like Alsatian. Yeah. Yeah, this is the this is the two edged sword of of nationalism. It's you know, it's it's why you know you and I would both call ourselves socialist internationalists more than you know, I, mm-hmm. yeah. I to some extent or another, right? Because I, I don't. That's a very I, I don't, for me at least. Yeah, I don't think I can like. I am not automatically hostile to every like form of national expression specifically, um, yeah. or like nationalism in like an artistic sense but like almost any attempt at forming a nation state will inevitably get into these very weird questions 
of like, what do we do with the people that don't fit quite into this on the border regions um, with Europe? Famously, pretty much all of these countries had to deal with the question of what to do with Jews, uh, (laughs) which, you know, had some pretty awful history. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Hey, what do we do with the Jews? Bad things is what we do with the Jews. We do bad things. Yes. That's (laughs) basically every time. We're very mean to them for For no goddamn reason. Yeah. No goddamn reason. Right. So, uh, it, you know. Yeah, it, because, because it's a, we're kind of dancing around it, but like nationalism is inherently exclusionary, right? In order to create a nation, mm-hmm. you have to define a group of people as not being a part of that nation, right? Which is famously where, I mean, right. you just brought them up, but like, this is why the Jews in Europe were such a problem for nationalist um, constructions Mm -hmm. because there were Jewish communities spread all um, over Europe and mm -hmm. they like, they were very Mm -hmm. distinct and they, they they maintained their distinctiveness all over the place and they did not fit. And so as you were like trying to define your own national identity, you have to define something as like being not that. And it was very easy to just be like those dudes over there. With yeah. their, with their, yeah, I mean, you know, with their blood sacrifices, and they didn't do that. Actually, just, just to be clear, I was, I'm, I'm yeah. in hyperbole. Yeah. The Jews did not do that. Yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> yes, explaining the the precedent. Yeah, the, the, yeah. <laughs> the, to be clear, yeah, no, um, and I was going to say the the uh, another European group, the Roma, are oh, also yeah. have also been a similar issue for Still. nationalist projects. Still, still, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there um, are, it is, a, it is a huge part of. I mean, we've we've talked about them a bunch now, but like, uh, anti-Roma sentiment is like huge in Orban's Hungary right now, and you're seeing it too. Um, there mm-hmm. was anti-Roma sentiment um, that was being uh, that was that was shot through in this Italian election most recently. Anytime the right rises anti-Roma stuff comes up and anti-Semitic stuff comes up Mm -hmm. because Roma by nature of their transient lifestyles and Jews, because they're just Jews, uh, they're just like, they're the people that nationalists hate. Like they just hate them. Mm -hmm. And because they, they, yeah, they, they, they represent an enemy with which you can orient your nation against. Right. Particularly if your nation is not strong enough to actually like fight a war with a different nation or you live in a society that has more or less eschewed war as a means of solving problems, which essentially is where Europe is right now. It's like we're not going to fight each other. We're just going to kind of be mean at each other in European Parliament and make life miserable for minorities. Yeah, I mean, like like like, uh, you know fun it's not a fun fact depressing fact when do you think the last expulsion of roma was i bet it was in the 90s it's even more recent no no oh god france france in 2011 no i did not know that that's terrible yes oh jesus what did they do yes it was a mass deportation but yeah that would be the last last deportation um like last expulsion yeah, that is bad. I don't like that. Yeah, and so the uh, the legacy of 1848 is, is just lives on in Europe. You know here, because you know, the good and the bad. Yeah, because in many ways, you know, 
if we're gonna like pull it back actually into 1848, the the every everybody learned things, right? Uh, we didn't get for the most part, we didn't get a lot of like things that we would consider successes on like on like our side, right? Uh, from 1848, we got um, yeah, we got consolidated Germany, we got consolidated Italy. I mean, they were headed that way anyway, basically. But 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 the autarchs, like the the autocrats, were able to like really consolidate power and and harness essentially the power of the industrial revolution to essentially have fighting forces that could like put down rebellions, and so then. Mm-hmm. And so then that ended up spurring, um, you know, the, the radicals and the, um, you know, the intelligentsia to use more diffuse methods of, um, of protest and of political, um, you know, what is the word I'm looking for here? Political power, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, but like, I mean, this is like, these, these are like the seeds of anarchy, like anarchism. These are mm-hmm. the seeds of, of a lot of these things of just like, small cells that are like engaged in stochastic terror, which is like, honestly, look, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a huge fan of killing people, but, um, honestly can't blame them for doing it, you know, mm-hmm. in the same way that yeah, I like, especially it, in a lot of these contexts. Yeah. Exactly. It, you know, in the same way that I like, I can't really blame people for, uh, you know, for, for fighting back in Palestine, you know, like, I can't blame you. Like, I don't really like, I don't really like people getting killed, but I can't really blame you for doing this. Right. Um, and you've got, you know, Mm -hmm. the formation of, of, of different, of different political groups that end up trying to like get in and undermine, um, you know, the, the governing bodies, um, you know, over time. Cause, cause, cause everybody learned, um, from it. And there was this like kind of, there was this deep winter (laughs) of social progress for most of the back half of, the 1800s while the autocrats you know kind of consolidated their reign and kept you know reigning over and and immiserating millions of people but in the background all of this stuff was bubbling under and people had learned and were and were were trying to push forward and trying to push at the contradictions of the system yeah yeah and i mean when when you talk about like probably the most successful revolution in 1848 was technically the french but that caved in within five years, right? Because that was a formation of the Second Republic. And then, um, and then, you know, the president, President Napoleon, declared himself Emperor Napoleon III. And then famously, Marx's, uh, Marx's quote that everyone knows, history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as farce, is in reference, of course, to that. <laughs> yep. and, and, you know, and like Napoleon, like, like, Napoleon's, uh, Napoleon III's like coronation and hubris ends up actually like, essentially creating the very thing that he was most afraid of, right? Which was actually a truly mm-hmm. unified Germany because Prussia just used the fact of the Franco-Prussian war to be like, Hey, this is it. We're just Germans now. Okay. Like this is it. It's a, it's over. Yeah. Franco-Prussian war. We just won. You were all our allies. Turns out you're all just Germans. That's it. Game over. And it's it just mm-hmm. like real bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, man, it's it's crazy how this all starts to domino into modern history because we can't we can't bring up 
the impacts of 1848 without going on a long spiel because you bring up the Franco-Prussian War. The Franco-Prussian War also leads to probably the, you could probably call the first socialist revolution, which would be this the Paris Commune, which happened after France was losing yep. the yep. Franco-Prussian and War. Clearly, like, is, is basically deposed. And then we have, yeah, then we have the Paris Commune. And this was like the first, and the Paris Commune was like the first time that like Paris moved and the rest of France didn't. And it was weird. And nobody really knew what to make of it because for most of the time, if Paris decided that something was happening, then that was what happened in the rest of France. And then this time Paris moved and the rest of France just like wasn't ready to go yet. And that's why the commune ended up breaking you know, down. And, and I think this is like, I, I would still probably call myself a Marxist or at least Marxian, but I, I will say 1848 really points to the extent that Marx was talking about Marx was was more of a prophet than he was a commenter on his own time. And I I really I really think this is the case because, you know, he he's writing the specter is haunting Europe of communism. And it's like, no, man, there's there's a lot more. The bourgeois revolutions are not done yet. You know, yeah. like this is not over in some places they haven't even begun. you know. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I would say that he's like a prophet in the in it very much in the Old Testament sense, complete with the beard. Um, but mm. like like <laughs> you know, he's not like I I think that people need to. I have I have a ton of respect for for Marx as a as a thinker and a commentator on on things, and and think that he was very very perceptive about the inherent like contradictions um, with capitalism and with you know, the way that capital and the ruling class interact with the rest of society. But like, I think that it is a huge mistake to treat him as like a fortune teller, essentially, even though I think he Mm -hmm. himself thought that he was a fortune teller. I do genuinely think of him as like a prophet in the old Testament sense, who is like, woe to you. Bad shit is going to happen because you are hurting people. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, like you yeah. have displeased God, essentially. <laughs> but but Marx's God, yeah, is, yeah, Marx's yeah. God is humans, not like God. But like you're making, yeah, people, you're yeah. you're hurting but, people. That is going to end up badly for you. Yeah, yeah. Marx's God is the proletariat, and yeah. you know, like in a lot of ways, yeah. That that's an interesting way of reading Marx, because yeah, you could really see the dictatorship of the proletariat as like a threat. exactly like Um, look if you don't shape up they're gonna be in control like mm -hmm. like chill the fuck out and treat them nicely or they're gonna kill you all (laughs) and yep and when you when you talk about places like russia that is exactly what happened you know um (laughs) exactly um yeah but yeah like you were saying you can just start spinning off like very very quickly Right, you get the Paris Commune. You also go, okay. You get the Franco-Prussian War. You get um, uh, Russia um, reacts to 1848 by being even more repressive um, mm-hmm. and being like even like crazier um, for like a bit. But they do this. They do this like vacillation, right? Because like because like they did yeah. free the serfs, but then the serfs couldn't really yeah. ever like actually leave, so they were still basically serfs. And they were, it just like, who was, uh, swung back and forth. Who was czar during 1848? I don't um, remember. Let me look it up right now. I want to say Alexander the third, 
but I could be wrong. Oh, wait, was it Nicholas the first? I don't... Here, let me just look it up. Uh, (laughs) I was right. You were right? It was Nicholas? Yep, it was Nicholas. There you go. Um, no, exactly. And, uh, it's so is, you know, it was, it was Nicholas who's, you know, he's also, that's, you know, y- you know, Ag- Alexander the first was the Napoleonic Wars. Nicholas the first was the agent of reaction, um, during 1848. Alexander the second saw the volcano that was Russia and tried to free the serfs and do, and he also abolished. No, nope. I take that back. He did not abolish Siberian exile. Um, no, he initiated Siberian exile, right? You know what? Cut. I'm gonna maybe cut this out because I, I don't. I'm not confident about this at all. <laughs> he was a reformer, Alexander II. He like in, instituted zemstvos, um, so like limited um, mm-hmm. local governance and things like that. I'm trying to read back through him. Oh boy, abolished corporal punishment. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I was right. I was right. I'll keep this in because uh, the abolition yeah. of uh, corporal punishment is what formed the Siberian exile system. Um, yeah, it was like, yeah. we're not yeah. going to like hurt you. You just have to go over there. You have to go away. Which, again, we do this domino effect, which is in a lot of ways semi-responsible for the Russian Revolution because you keep sending oh. all of the dissidents <laughs> to go hang out together. <laughs> yep. We're hanging out together with a bunch of peasants. Yep. Teach Stalin's out there robbing trains to raise money for the Bolsheviks, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure... Yeah, Alexander II was the one who got blown up, right? Yes, so he he got blown up. I remember this very vividly. He got blown up, and uh, his his son was there, and that's why his son was then the reactionary force, because he's like, see, that's what happens. You reform for the people, and they still blow you up, so I'm going to crack down even harder. Um, Alexander III goes to Nicholas II, and oops, there we are, Russian Revolution. Yep. That's, yeah. And so, like, that's how it goes. You've got this, like, nice, gentle, kind-hearted, kind-hearted, he was still a czar, um, uh, you know, man trying to, like, a little bit make his people's lives better. And, uh, you know, yeah, he gets, he gets blown up because he's not, cause, because you can't, he, he's, still a, he's still an absolute monarch, right? You can't ever He's still, still an absolute monarch. monarch. And, you know, like, you're, you're getting around to abolishing, you're abolishing serfdom at this point way after the feudal systems have gotten destroyed in the you know the you know west it's so yeah. it's like you know too little too late buddy yeah in a lot of i ways. mean to his, to his credit yeah. he did it before the united states abolished slavery so that's that's also true um <laughs> which is got it yeah it's its own impact on us uh, yeah <laughs> taking so uh, long on that one that's i couldn't remember if it was Alexander II or Alexander III, but there's a cathedral in Moscow. No, is it St. Petersburg or Moscow? No, it's St. Petersburg. Yeah. There's a cathedral in St. Petersburg um, built over the spot where he got blown up. There's like a dent in the pavement. Oh, you wow. Can, like, you can like see the spot where the bomb went That's, off. Oh. It's pretty cool. That's so cool. Um, you know, pisses me off there's this war going on because Russia is a place I would absolutely love to visit, but uh, I would love to <laughs> don't see that happening anytime soon. It really is such a, it really is such a cool country. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it, like, it, it, it sucks that the guy who's in charge of it is in charge of it. It's, is yes. all I will say. <laughs> it really sucks that that dude's in charge of it. Uh, because, it's a really, really cool country. I, I, re- I liked being there. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
so so getting more into the uh, the impacts of 1848, and I, I think we've really established the impacts of it quite a bit already by the fact that we can't talk about anything related to 1848 without spiraling out into like 200 years of history that it caused, you know? Yeah. Um, but you want to, let's, let's do our connection to the U.S., right? So a lot of the Germans who got crushed, uh, the German liberals and socialists and nationalists, yep. they all got crushed. And uh, instead... And they ran away, and they ran away to the Midwest of the United yeah. States. I mean, why do and, you think, why do you think uh, Wisconsin is the way it is? Yes. Um, okay. Why do you think Missouri, even though being a southern state, did not join the South? It's because a bunch of fucking socialist Germans moved there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of a lot of socialist Germans ended up serving in the Civil War on the Union side, and were radical abolitionists. Like why, why, you know, why, why didn't, why did Minnesota have such a strong like presence in the, in the war to the extent that they still taunt Virginia about having one of their flags? It's like, well, yeah, because a bunch of Germans moved to <laughs> Minnesota and yeah. every once in a while Virginia yeah. is like, Hey, can we have that flag back? And Minnesota will be like, come get it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and you know, a, a theme on this show that I've come back to. Um, you know, I you know, I had Phil Chrisman on. I've had Josh on to talk about this over and over. Is is how we like reimagine the Midwest, and you being a Midwesterner as well, um, probably have thought quite a bit about this as well. Um, I, I a lot of the times the people I'm looking to in the past is like encapsulating what a good Midwest could be were those Germans, those Germans that came over. Because yeah. they were they were actually agents for radical reform at the time, um, um, yeah. yeah. The, the Germans and the Poles, you know, on um, huge Polish contingent mm-hmm. comes over because um, they're fleeing essentially Russian persecution. Well, simultaneous Russian and German persecution um, during that time, mm-hmm. and so like that's where you know the huge Polish contingent in specifically like Chicago comes from is is like from that time period. Yeah, you've got all of these, you know, and I, Irish folks in in the Midwest are considerably less um, influential than they are out east. But yeah, like like all of these people fleeing this persecution, but bringing their ideas, and those areas were were relatively sparsely populated. So even a few thousand of these dudes mm-hmm. ended up making a huge difference in the political lives of these places. It's it's a, it's a big part of why. Um, a lot of those country, uh, a lot of those states, rather, uh, ended up having you know pretty progressive state constitutions, right? Mm. What you think about it too, like, like a lot of the people who were in bleeding Kansas were people who had mm-hmm. who basically got off the boat from Europe, raced across the country to Kansas to make sure that slavery would not expand. That's pretty dope. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Well, I, and. I think that's that's the beauty of 1848, too, because I think the internationalist dream of 1848 did have an impact, at least in the mm-hmm. U.S. to some extent, because you had Germans who have no investment um, when it comes to national identity or, or blood and soil or whatever, racing across, yeah, committed to not allowing slavery to happen in the U.S. Like, that's, that's amazing, you know, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just be like, look, we didn't succeed over here, but I'll be damned if we're gonna let like 
I'm, I'll be damned if, if I'm going to let subjugation continue in the yeah. same place that I live. So, like, nope, we're getting at it. We're mm-hmm. going over there, and we're stopping this. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's like, y- you know, there's something to be right. said that the West in the 19th century was the frontier of this, even though, even though liberals technically won in the U.S., you still have the frontier of European reactionaries marching mm-hmm. forward. And so I do think, like... You know, at the end of the day, German the Germans were still colonizing, but yep. you know the colonization was already taking place, and they were yep. rushing in. Like, can we try to save this state? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and also like you don't get you don't get like you don't get municipal socialism, you don't get sewer socialism without all of those German immigrants in the mm-hmm. in in the in the 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, right? Like. Milwaukee doesn't become a place that that elects three decades worth of socialist mayors without these guys coming over. I was going to mention Milwaukee. You know, Eugene Debs doesn't yeah. rise out of those unions, those trade unions in 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 Wisconsin without these guys coming over with this sort of radicalism. We don't get we don't we don't we don't get a unionized auto industry in Michigan without these people coming over. Mm. You know, like, like, yeah, these yeah. people coming over really kickstarted the unionization process in the United States, in, which is huge mm-hmm. and is the kind of thing that like, you know, we, 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 we forget them at our, at our own peril because, you know, it, we've seen what happens in this country mm-hmm. when union participation rates uh, go down. Nothing good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been, it's been disastrous for the last several decades, yeah. but you know, it, it, if, if union, no. if union, if, you know, if, if union participation rates aren't above, I mean, gosh, what are they at? Like they're in their twenties right now. I think twenty percent of mm-hmm. jobs I think are unionized right now, which is just insane. Um, like that's so many people without any meaningful. I mean, me included, without any meaningful protections from their employer. Those people worked so hard yeah. to get people those protections. And we have just, over the last 50 years, allowed rich people to just take all of the stuff mm-hmm. that these people fought so hard for away from us. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, wish, we, uh, I wish we got the, uh, that German radicalism uh, floating around still. Um, well, and, you know, and there's something to, like, the, the kind of cliche liberal, like, immigrants make America thing um, that I, I think is really, really... Uh, you know, a lot of truth comes out of that, especially when you talk about the 48ers, because, I mean, you don't have the American progressive movement in a lot of ways. It's super cringy, you know, like <laughs> Hamilton immigrants, we get the job done. But like also like <laughs> I, th- this 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 country like this country stagnates when we don't bring in new people. It like it regresses yeah. massively when we don't bring in new people and it, it, mm-hmm. It is good to have new people living in this country. Yeah, well, and you can see why you know why um, reactionaries are invested in not bringing in more people in the country because you look at the history of it and you see that like you know I I don't want to act like everyone who shows up in you know at American shores or borders is is a full fledged commie but like they are 
generally changing the status quo in some way. And when you look back at the Germans and the Irish and the Italians, like they, they, they really, a lot of them were lefties and a lot of them did push things in a specific direction. And so, yeah, the establishment fears more of them showing up. Yeah. And, it, and they don't even have to be like, they don't even have to be, um, like you were saying, they don't even have to be left wing. They can just be different and having mm-hmm. someone different around you just changes people's minds. It makes people yeah. think about the world differently when somebody who is different yeah. is around you. Sometimes it makes, sometimes it changes mm-hmm. people's mind for the better, or sometimes it changes people's mind for the worse, but it changes people's minds. And then that leads to societal foment, which the power, mm-hmm. which powerful people do not like. They, they yeah. don't like societal foment. Now, the, the darker side of this migration, um, this emigration that took place, is that Germany and Italy are both left without a lot of their socialists and liberals. And they're often left with their nationalists and the reactionaries. And uh, coincidentally, what are the two countries that birthed okay, fascism? Weird. We, we, weird, <laughs> weird, weird how that happened. Yeah, you 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 violently suppress uh, intellectuals and, and left wing uh, political parties and thinkers and thought. Uh, and what, what do you what do you get in a, about a hundred years time? Huh? Weird. Weird how that <laughs> yeah, works. Whoa. Weird. Well, and it's it's almost think, like that's an utterly predictable is, uh, consequence. Sorry, go ahead. I said it's almost like that's an utterly yeah. predictable consequence. Absolutely. Well, and. Uh, you know, we could we could even talk about Hungarian nationalism here because, I mean, take a look at what's going on in Hungary right now. And there's something to be said for that the left wing movements got crushed and, you know, nationalism really, you know, took over, you know, although yeah. like. Because I would say I would say that potentially you could see the roots of uh, Hungary's current um, spin towards fascism in um, in in the the Soviet uh, crushing of the 56 uprising. Because most of what was happening in 56 in Hungary was not a, it was not a conservative revolt against the communist powers in, um, uh, in Hungary. It was, it, it was, it was a left wing revolt against, uh, against a dictator who had become more authoritarian. And they were like, no, like, yeah, this is supposed to be a communist nation. This is supposed to be socialist. Like you're, you should like be more responsive to mm-hmm. us. And it got crushed. And then the Soviets imposed themselves back down upon Hungary and mm-hmm. kind of pushed some of those more interesting political thinkers out of the country. Um, and then mm-hmm. that, ha- you know, similar to what, to what you were just talking about with, with Italy and Germany, you, you push all of those, you push all of those like activists who want to make the, who want to make life better for people out. And it's not surprising that several decades later, the only people left, um, in power or with the ability to affect any sort of change are people who want to make things worse for people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And you you have this this crackdown on uh yeah the the revolutionary fervor that was kind of in the air. And I I think it would still be fair to say that um it was a left wing revolution. But if you're a more authoritarian leftist, you're not going to like what I say that it was also a liberal revolution, not in an economic sense, but in a political question sense. 
and I, I think this this is kind of interesting because the uh, the legacy of Hungarian nationalism kind of comes back up when we talk about um, nationalism as a resist a resisting force against a uh, empire above you, right? You know, that there is a sense you can say that it was it had a nationalist element um, in the sense of like. You know, the Soviets were very much not a fan of, I, you know, pushing for a Hungarian identity. Um, yeah, they didn't want national autonomy, really, in a lot of ways. They didn't yeah. want that. And yeah. so, like, they, they nodded towards national autonomy in certain areas or whatever, but, like, realistically, everything was still under the control of the Politburo. Yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I was wanting to see if I could find any movies about 1848 to watch while I was at work. Um, and there's like nothing. 1848 is a very underrated thing. However, there, there is one movie, um, but you know, I didn't watch it today because I've, I've seen it before, um, called The Roundup. Um, I'm not going to even remotely try to uh, pronounce the Hungarian name for it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a it's, language yeah. that escapes me too. I look at it and I go, "That's letters." <laughs> yeah, I. But it's it directed by uh, genuinely one of my favorite directors, incredibly underrated director, uh, Miklos Yangshou, um, mm. who, like, if anybody's an art housey guy, usually the only Hungarian director they know is Bellatar, because um, of you know Satan Tango and Damnation, Turner's yeah. Horse, Horse all, good good movies, but. Uh, Miklos Young show, very underrated, I think. Um, but his, his movie, The Roundup, uh, comes out, it's, it's 1966. Um, and I think it's an interesting way of talking about how this, this, uh, legacy lives on, right? So it's a movie that comes out in 1966. It's set in the 1860s. Okay. So like, um, in the near past, <laughs> like, like, and in it the, is in about, the 48 was, was close. Yeah. And it is about... Uh, rounding up of the former radicals and the suppression that was going on against the former uh, Kossuth, um supporters. I don't think I'm pronouncing that name right, but fuck it. Um, and it's it's a pretty brutal movie. It's a it's just a pretty it's it's if you're not in the mood for uh, slow black and white uh, desolate fields with people uh, in pain, uh, probably don't watch it. But it is a very good movie. Um, <laughs> Well, you've but it's, it's one of those. You've described my aesthetic perfectly, so I'm gonna have to watch this. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great movie. Um, but yeah, so so around the time it came out, uh, there was a lot of uh tension. I believe that it had some uh, censorship. Uh, a bunch of his movies were censored. Um, yeah. and it was you know it was a source of tension, and he you know he was he was interviewed frequently, and they're like, "This is this about the '56 revolt?" And he's like, "No, no, 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 no." The, the instant the Soviet Union falls, the instant the Soviet Union falls, he's like, okay, yeah, that was totally about the uprising. <laughs> you just have to, you just have to uh, hope that you have uh, done a good enough job as an artist that people can see what you're, what you're trying to say, even if you can't, yes. even if you can't actually say it out loud. Um, um, but in in general, I think Nicholas Young Show is a guy that's that is a very interesting. If you want to kind of wrestle with nationalism as a a thing, as we've been talking about, he's he's a good example of that because he was a radical, very much a communist. 
filmmaker, but he was also very heavily criticized because he made a big deal out of using very Hungarian symbolism and very much emphasizing Hungarian identity. So it's it's always yeah, he's always been a, a, a controversial figure among uh, people who support the Soviet Union. But. Yeah, well, because I get because I mean, just I mean, even right there, like like being really Hungarian is 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 kind of forming that like like we had talked about earlier, where it's like, yeah, it's you're not us. It's it's creating yourself a different. It's mm-hmm. creating difference, right? It's it's. And as you were saying, uh, nationalism can be useful when you're fighting against a larger empire. But then, like, what is the mm-hmm. what is the internal empire that you have now created by constructing a nationalism? And mm-hmm. what and who are the people that are left out who live among you who are not included there? And like yes. that's that's you know again kind of what I was saying. It's like it's a it's a twisted form of solidarity. It's a limited form of solidarity. You can only mm-hmm. let some people in. But it is useful. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. It's it's useful. And I, I think that, you know, something that was kind of coming out, we, we mentioned the episode we did with Ma- of Mammonberg recently with Keanu Haydari, which since it's come up twice now, I'm going to I'll put it in the show notes. But it's really um, great. Keanu fucking killed it. It was a great episode. Yeah, he's always, always uh, really, really makes that podcast step up whenever he shows up. He's just always one of my favorite guests to have on. But um you know, dealing with genuine national differences is something that, you know, he was talking about that solidarity, a lot of leftist internationalists really struggle with because we like to just be like, oh, we're all part of one race, the human race, you know, but there's <laughs> there's like genuine differences. And I think that in theory, our solidarity should learn how to celebrate cultural differences. And so this is yeah. why I, I feel very comfortable with Miklos Yangcho as a as a. Um, as an artist, because I, I really like his celebration of Hungarian identity. I think it's cool. Um, and I don't see any suggestion of an exclusionary aspect to it in his work. However, it's also very much a reality that come the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of the uh, Hungarian kind of republic we see today, that that exclusionary side really arrives. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, what was it? Can I say leftists need to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, yeah, you can like acknowledge that people are a little bit different than you and kind of learn to mm-hmm. live with and celebrate those facts, but also su- support them um, when they need help, mm-hmm. when they ask for help. Uh, yeah. Don't just impose help upon people. <laughs> imposing help really, right, right. Ra- imposing help <laughs> rarely goes well. Yeah, there's, there's nothing. I mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite movies is the one that shakes the barley, which is about, um, uh, which is about uh, the Irish Revolution and then subsequent civil war. Um, and it is like mm. Irish. It is real Irish. Yeah. And it loves the fact that it is Irish and that it is like celebrating. Yes. And that is, I think that that, I also think that that is really good. You know, like it's good. Yeah. To, it's good to be proud of. It's good to be proud of your traditions as long as your traditions aren't like, you know, raping and pillaging exclusionary right right yeah absolutely i mean i i've there's 
you know, like you mentioned with the Irish, I, I think there's a lot of examples of this kind of more productive nationalism that is not exclusionary, but just a celebration of the culture in your area. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've been very moved, even though I'm not Hungarian, by a lot of Yangshou's work where you see people singing f- Hungarian folk songs in a depiction of a peasant strike while they walk into the guns and get shot. It's very yeah. moving. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know, you know, I... There's something to that, but it's it's all about the exclusionary side of the nationalism. So when you talk about nationalism, are you talking about a celebration of a people and its culture? Or are you talking about uh, forming a state that enforces this culture and right. cuts out people who don't belong in the culture? Yeah. Or are you or are you talking about creating an identity that allows people to feel like they belong to something, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like that's, that's different, right? Like creating an identity that Mm -hmm. allows people to feel like they belong, um, and can share commonality with their neighbors is very different than creating an identity that is, um, enforced with the power of the state. And that is, that is where nationalism can like go off the rails and get really crappy and really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Examples of this, you probably, you know, most people probably aren't even aware of. Like France has control over the language. The Academy mm-hmm. Francaise is, is you know, like the the concept of the nation state. I, I think that we are lucky. We have our own problems with being a colonial settler, colonial state in the U.S. But we we are very lucky, and I think sometimes ignorant to just what it means when we talk about a nation state in the European sense, because there is very much a sense of who does and doesn't belong. Yeah. You know, Uh, written into the constitution. Yeah. The (laughs) the Academy Francaise, you know, like in, in colloquial French, obviously people use like all sorts of like borrowed words, but if you're talking about like what actually counts as real French, like it all comes from the Academy Francaise. Right. And it's not like, like Merriam Webster doesn't get to state organization. Yeah. Like Merriam-Webster doesn't get to decide what English is. We do, like, because of how we mm-hmm. because of how we talk, and like we just get to decide what English is, and then Merriam-Webster reacts to that and like amends its dictionary. Mm-hmm. That's different than Merriam-Webster being yeah. like, "That's not English. You don't get to talk like that." Right? Whereas the Academy, yeah, can can go like, "You're not speaking French, so that's just not French." Yeah, you're, it's not real French, and so like if you. If you learn French, the French that I learned in college, um, the, the little bit of it that I retained, is at Académie Française. It is that French. Um, yeah. And it, it's it's funny because I, I had a coworker at the coffee shop we both worked at at one point uh, who knew some French, and he was from, uh, I believe, Zanzibar originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he knew some French, and he made me f- speak French with him. And when I replied in French, he burst out laughing and started saying, you speak white French. And it's because, like, there is, yeah, because I've learned Parisian Academy Francaise, you know, French. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, also think about uh, the, the metric system. I mean, that's also French. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, there's there was also, you know, uh, we... I touched on it earlier, but like there's still like remnants of Bosque identity in France that like France has tried mm-hmm. really, really hard to purge from society. And the Bosques are still like very tenaciously hanging on of like, no, you don't get to make us go away. Um, I, I, that's yeah. very, that's very fascinating to me. Um, there's also mm-hmm. the, you know, France is such a, 
such a avowedly aggressively secular society that like, you know, yes. the religious head coverings are a huge flashpoint for them right now when it's just like, I don't know, man, like, why does it matter to you? It doesn't make someone less French if they just want to put mm-hmm. something on their head. Like, I, I think th- this is, it's a very complicated thing, but like my, my basic thing is no one should be forced to wear a head covering. But if they want to wear one, they should mm-hmm. be allowed to, and they shouldn't be told that they can't. I I find yeah, th- I, I'm glad you brought this up. This has been a uh, a beef of mine for a while because um, I, I a lot of Americans, like liberal Americans, I've heard talk very um, fondly of French secularism, uh, especially in college. I heard a lot of that, and I. I, I don't I, I don't think it's fair because yet yes, you will get in trouble for street preaching and stuff like that. But I don't think that it is enforced on Christians in the same way it is on Muslims. One, because you know, there there isn't quite a Christian equivalent to the hijab, at least in Catholic French Catholic thinking. But the so there, there's it's not getting enforced on them. But then the other thing is like I've been to fucking Paris. Okay, like there's there are places called Saint Denis named after Saint Denis. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, it's in the fucking air. <laughs> so just because, like, just because the society says that it's secular doesn't actually the entire the entire world started crying because an old building in France caught fire a couple of years ago. Yes, you a know, Christian I'm, Gothic building, which, I'm, which I'm, to be I'm, fair, is tragic. Yes, I'm. I was being like hyperbolic there for a second because I was also upset because that building is dope and that was a bummer. Uh, but like, that was a church, <laughs> and it just like accidentally <laughs> caught fire, and everyone was really sad about it. And like, no one would have given a shit if no one would give a shit if the mother mosque in Davenport, Iowa, caught fire. No one would care. But yeah. it's the oldest mosque in America. No one would really care. It would not be international news if it just accidentally caught on fire mm-hmm. and burned down sometime, right? That's the difference yeah. between like a cultural Christianity and a cultural like uh, like a secular culture yeah. or or a, a culture of of like of like veneration of Islam or something like that. Like just because France says it's secular does not mean that it is not overwhelmingly culturally Christian, and that it does not mm-hmm. enforce that in many unspoken ways. Yeah, because, and it did this through, hey, the buzzword for this episode, nationalism, because it usurped the the remnants of medieval and early modern Christianity into, well, this is our national heritage, um, which yep. I'm glad they did because that was a way to keep the the Gothic architecture and yeah, kept all that stuff you know, those things that, and I'm I'm glad they did. To be clear, like I've you know I I've, I've been in those places; they are amazing, but like the process of doing that was also the Christianization of the national identity. And even if nobody believes it in France, it's still baked into the city streets. And so you cannot claim it's a secular thing. And I think that because of that, I don't think this, the government should even try to claim that it's secular in that sense. I, I think it should, it just should just admit what it is, but then allow <laughs> multiculturalism allow different religious expressions but maybe i'm just a, a damn american that uh that likes yeah. my religious freedom or whatever but shit libs or something i don't know but like yeah it's just like I, 
what's 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 the problem here? Like, if somebody wants to wear mm-hmm. a head cover, you just let them. It's, it's they're not hurting you. They're not hurting you. Mm-hmm. Like, stop being so yeah. weird about this, man. We got derailed on France. <laughs> oh yeah, I well, I get mad about France. I get mad about <laughs> France too. I don't get as mad about France oh, as I, I get about England, out. but. Yeah, I was gonna say your your England is my France. It's a it's a region I know a lot of history about, and it pisses me off most of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just, I'm trying to fucking think about English people. I just my blood pressure goes up twenty points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. I, I I will talk so much shit about French, but I will I will still be the guy like staring with my mouth open in Versailles, like you know I. <laughs> well, I, look, I'll I'll talk I'll talk mad shit about I'll talk mad shit about Russia, um, but like that. Hey, man, <laughs> damn, there's some really cool yeah. stuff there. The Hermitage is dope. Sarskoy Salo yeah. is dope. There's like the yeah. Kazansky Cathedral, St. Isaac's, like in, in St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. the Kremlin in Moscow is beautiful. Uh, you know, like I yeah. you know, I will openly gawk at, at, at those as well. I will just openly gawk at these like insane mm-hmm. uh, displays of wealth that these terrible, horrible people accumulated on the backs <laughs> of their subjects. Oh. <laughs> And I think in part because one thing that I think that certain liberals and some of the 19th century revolutionary projects, thank God, did. Uh, they didn't follow through the French Revolution thing of, of destroying everything. Yeah. They they went, we can reclaim this as places of national identity and cultural identity or whatever. And, and yeah. I'm glad that happened. I'm glad that with the fall of the Ancien Regime, there wasn't... Oh, entirely the complete destruction of this architecture, but rather a reclaiming it of like, well, the French people are the ones who built this, you know, rather than whatever king or whatever. Yeah, this is ours now. It's not, it was yours, but now it's ours. It's it's everybody's. It, it mm-hmm. marks a, a potentially, here we go, back on my thing. Um, it marks potentially what would be a good way forward for um, Republicans in the United Kingdom. Uh, they could just take away Mm. all of the palaces from the royals and just be like <laughs> those are ours now all of the stuff in it yeah that's ours this is ours and now people yeah. can go and walk around your houses yeah yeah the the tourism fund no longer the the tourism no longer funds the royal family it funds the nhs you know it yeah yeah, absolutely. I could see that. I, I think that's a... Because, you know, and beyond just the national identity to make this more as we, we are socialists after all, these belong to the workers. The workers who died to make a lot of these structures, you know? <laughs> the workers made this. It belongs to the workers. It doesn't belong yeah. to the, the people who exploited the workers' labor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, like, I don't know. I I guess we, we've gone on a lot of different rabbit trails with this, but there, there's something to this of, like... I think it's become pretty clear. Like, I think I've made it pretty clear. I have like really mixed feelings when it comes to when, when we talk about nationalism broadly, but I have a lot of dis, dis, I despise exclusionary notions of nationalism and I despise the nation state as a concept. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that we, a multicultural um, socialism is, is something that, 
there's an aspect of celebrating these the springtime of the peoples right in Europe that you can you can celebrate these these cultures that began to form with romanticism without accepting the exclusionary edge that those came with you know and then and then we can kind of and then we can kind of pull that forward now into you know into into current events too a little bit right you know we're we're looking at mm-hmm. Uh, you and I have talked about this a little bit uh, recently where it kind of feels like we're either we, we either missed we either missed our 1848 and it happened and we're living in the aftermath of it or we're like in the middle of it right now um, mm-hmm. and that that like you know things that are happening in in Ukraine things that are happening in Iran things that are happening in Europe potentially, even even things that are happening in the United Ar- States, Armenia, yeah, they they yeah. represent they represent like upswells of potential liberation um, and potential resistance against like hegemonic power and violence. And in some places we're winning, and in some places we're losing. And that like, I mean, that mirrors what happened <clears throat> in forty eight, but. You know, it's kind of up to us to like give our support to people who need it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I don't have I don't have really well formed thoughts um, about that particularly yeah. at this point. I'm more or less just feel like I'm living in this really knife edge period of time. That's basically kind of how I feel, yeah. which I assume well, is how people felt back then too. I think what what we're witnessing if we want to connect this to 1848 is the resurgence, the restating of the three questions that mm-hmm. that were the questions of 1848. I think that the they are question, different the political now. question and the economic question or the social mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Of course, yeah, but of course when we talk about the political question, it's very different now. We're not talking about absolutist monarchs for the most part anymore. We're not, you know, it, it's it's not quite the same question but it rhymes, you know, it it is still about the same subjects. And when we talk about the social question, we're no longer talking about these damn factory things that are showing up. We're talking about um, the, the complete like consolidation of, of credit wealth, you know, that that's completely fiat and untangible. And the, the, the expansion of information technologies we're talking about, it's a different world, but it's, it's the same questions in a very different context are being asked. And we, and we like kind of, uh, hubristically thought that we had solved some of those questions, but we like certainly have not, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, like the economic question is just like a huge one. Right. Like, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, like I kind of like hinted at earlier, you know, like we're living through, I think a different kind of, uh, economic revolution, right? 48 was the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. We're like in the midst of essentially a digital revolution and information revolution. Right. And it is upending people's lives Mm -hmm. and it is, and you know, we've seen the, we've seen the resurgence over the past, you know, 30, 40 years of, of capital, um, clawing ever larger things. I mean, we've, we've essentially reconstituted an aristocracy, um, within our Mm -hmm. societies. And that's like, that is leading to predictably bad outcomes. Um, which is why there is yeah. so much foment, right? I mean, uh, people like to talk about the like, people say it all the time, but like, you know, who had the second most votes in the election that got the Nazis to power in, uh, 
in the 30s, it was the communists, right? Like, people rush to the edges. It's just a matter of making sure that we grab enough people to not let the fascists win. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think... I, I like this formulation of the three questions returning, to because I, I think that the left, the economic or social left, socialists broadly, do not answer the other questions all in the same way. And that has become very apparent to me um, over especially the invasion of Ukraine. Um, I used to not like the phrase tanky because I felt it was misused a lot. But as literal tanks have been <laughs> going into Ukraine and leftists have been cheering it on, you know, it, it revives the, you know, yeah. the original term being, hey, speaking of 1956, that's where the term comes from, right? Yeah. yeah. And whose side are you on? The tanks are not. And so, like, the political question comes back up. And for me, this year has been, yeah, this 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 uh, year has been a big turning point for me of like focusing a lot more on the political question again and going like, no, I am a Democrat in the sense of I, like I believe in democracy. Yeah. In like letting people have a say (laughs) in how they are ruled. Like that is important. Mm -hmm. That's crucial. Yeah. (laughs) And um, you know, when we talk about Ukraine or whatever, I, I think we, we're coming back to the national question again. Like, is there such thing as national, um, uh, a right to national uh, uh, self-identity, like the ability to, I don't know. I, uh, do, do Ukrainians have the right to have their own country? Now, like, do Ukrainians have the right to Ukrainian. exist? <laughs> yeah. And yes. it's like, I would answer it, that it, it, in the affirmative. Like, yes, they do. <laughs> you know? I, but, you know, then I, I add this this thing that I've been saying through this whole episode, that I don't want that nationalism to be an exclusionary one. And I do want fair, fair treatment for Russian minorities that live in Ukraine, as well as Jews who live in Ukraine. And, you know, like, right. You know, and that's, that's going to be a struggle against the Nazis in Ukraine because of that. Yes, absolutely. Or like, you know, the, the Tatar minority in Ukraine, right? Like they deserve to stay They're They're from Ukraine. Like they deserve to stay there and have their, and like live in where they're from. Like they, they shouldn't be made to move. Stalin moved them. And they didn't get to move back until the nineties, and then Russia just took the, took yeah. the land back again. Like, to, <laughs> I'm like, God damn it! Absolutely, it's um, hmm. yeah. These these are the questions that are returning. Yeah, and how we answer them is going to be important. Yeah, and it, it, they're they're questions that I, I you know I don't, I don't know if we'll ever really be able to all the way get away from them, but it's a struggle that you have to just. Uh, it's a struggle that you have to just keep having, right? Because as you were saying, the questions, the questions remain the same, but the circumstances change and your answers to the questions have to change over time. The way that you deal with the questions has to change and adapt with the times. Um, you know, you can have, you can have, you can have broad principles, you know, solidarity, shared prosperity, um, egalitarianism, you know things like that. You you can keep your broad principles, but you have to you have to you have to change with the times and, and adapt um, to be able to to be able to stay on top of these questions. Because like we were saying, yeah. you know, nationalism is a is a useful invention um, in some circumstances. But then if you just stop with nationalism, then you end up with world wars. Yeah. 
that's bad. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, I mean, that's right. Cause, cause nationalism and liberalism or nationalism and socialism can align as they did in 1848 during the springtime, but they mm-hmm. have contradictions and they will split up when it comes to, we saw that even autumn. by the end of the year. Yeah, exactly. If you can't, yeah. if you can't work so through then, the contradictions, then you're doomed. Yes. And so that's, that's the moment where you do have to pick a side. Like, you know, I, I'm, I, when, when they're all on the same side, I'm a nationalist. Right. But mm-hmm. once the autumn comes, I'm a socialist, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the side of an exclusionary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's something to this. Yeah. That these, the answers to these questions are going to inevitably be contradictory. And then that's when you choose the priority that's necessary, which mm-hmm. is in my opinion, uh, democracy and socialism, but <laughs> We are, we are of one mind here. Yeah, yeah, we're we're a little too on the same page sometimes. That's uh... <laughs> true. That's that's all right. It's, it's 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 nice to not be like arguing, you know, though. Debating. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> not having not having debate bro time. Yeah. Well, this has been a this has been a rad conversation. There's been a lot here. Yeah, I'm. This has been super fun. Um, thank you for having me on. I love talking yeah. to you, dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's always a blast. I or do you have anything to plug anymore now that you're off Twitter, or is it just no? If you uh, uh, just appear on podcasts occasionally. Yeah, I show up on uh, podcasts, and if anyone wants to ever talk to me, you can find me on the Mammon Brick Discord. Uh, if you ask me nicely, I might give yes. you my phone number, but that's about it. Like, I yeah, I don't. I try to stay off. <laughs> I try to stay off the internet because it was really, uh, it was really hurting my brain for a while there. I'm, uh, I'm much, it's, I'm much less well informed now that I'm not on Twitter, but I'm also much happier now that I'm not on Twitter. So, uh, yes. I've decided that's an acceptable trade-off. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say the, the last episode you were on marks the beginning of you becoming incredibly active in the Mammonberg Discord because I forced you to download Discord to record the last episode. And then threw you in the Mammonberg Discord, and now you're probably the most active person in it. That's probably true. Yeah, I just annoy people talking about food all the time now. (laughs) So yeah, come come see some of the stuff uh, Chris cooks in the Mammonberg Discord. (laughs) Yeah, see my terrible photographs of the food I cook. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, this was uh, this was a blast, and I hope to have you on Mammonberg again and Fruitless again, and absolutely, always a pleasure. Anytime I'm, anytime I'm free and you want me on, I'm down. Absolutely. All right. Hey, All right. have a good night. Mike. You too. See you. All right. Bye, bud. Bye.